So hello and welcome to All Four Quarters, your one-stop shop for news, views and overreactions to all things NFL. This week we'll be looking at filthy plays and inconsistent officiating. What exactly is going on in the league and how do we stop it? We're going to look at the return of Justin Pierre-Paul, high four everybody, and a couple of the other moves that have happened in the last week to rosters. And then we're also going to have a quick look at uh, the Greg Hardy saga and how that is continuing. Then we're going to have a look at some of the games from last week, some good, some bad. We're going to take some questions from our listeners and then we're going to have a look at the games next week. Okay, so hey guys, it's uh, myself, Harry, and Ronan this week, as Dave can't join us. Uh, say hi, Harry. Hi. Say hi, Ronan. Ahoy, hi. Hey, how are you all getting on, lads? Yeah, not doing too bad. Getting used to working again, it's uh, been a bit of a ride. Doing well, you know, you know, good overall. Yeah, similar enough for myself. I had a bit of fun, wrote an article uh, about the AFC wildcard race and got published up on uh, Arrowheads Abroad, so that was quite nice. Uh, Shows uh, what, what what you can do when you've got an hour spare and nothing else to think about. Um, <laughs> so, so I suppose, yeah, that's it, that's it. Hard hard at work, hard at work. Um, <laughs> so I suppose we we'll move on to the first area of the of the news this week, and uh, we're going to kick off on a slightly uh, slightly irritated note. We're just going to have a look at some of the dirty plays and bad refereeing that was happening this weekend. There's a couple of very Obvious examples of this, there was the horrible hit on Teddy Bridgewater, uh, which knocked him unconscious before he actually hit the floor. A similar helmet-to-helmet battering of Latavius Murray that wasn't even flagged, which was ridiculous. Terrible jumps of flags against like hits on Drew Brees that seemed completely legitimate. And then just the entirety of the Broncos' offense being complete dickheads. Like Similar to the catch rule, there's not a hugely clear definition on what is and isn't roughing or uh, or not allowed. There's a lot of questions about where you call, how you call, and a lot of inconsistencies between how different refs seem to call different infractions. Like I'm gonna go to uh, gonna go to Harry on this first, but like, what what do you think is the issue here? Is it just that it's an unclear rule, or is it that, that the refs just have internal biases that they can't get past? I think it's a bit of both, and I mean, you know, there's always the, you know, what's a hit on Tom Brady, what's a hit on Drew Brees, what's a hit on Peyton Manning versus what's a hit on other quarterbacks, and in terms of defenders themselves often not knowing what to do, and that doesn't excuse some of the quite malicious play that we saw in some of the other uh, incidents, but when you have, like, the league's made a big push about helmet-to-helmet contact, that's pretty obvious, as it happened in the case of Latavius Murray, that sort of thing that needs to be flagged, as it was that not only left Murray unconscious, that also resulted in a fumble that stood uh, even though it was fairly obvious. And then you look at what happened where DeMarcus Ware was kneeling on, I think, Jack Doyle's neck after a play, completely unnoticed. And jumping up and down Exactly, yeah, well. he was really digging it in there. And then, of course, Akeem Tlaib poking, uh, poking uh, Dwayne Allen in the eye, which the referees noticed and flagged, but decided wasn't worth an ejection. Now, fortunately, Tlaib has been suspended, I think, for one game afterwards, yeah. which is something. But you've really got to ask, like, what constitutes sufficiently dangerous play? And I think there's an element of the referees themselves either not being sure after seeing things in real time of where, you know, of where a hit took place or exactly what the intent was. So I'd be interested to see if the league should be looking at, for serious incidents like that, being giving the referees the option to go to replay to see what happened, to see exactly where a hit was laid. Because you have a situation like what happened with Drew Brees where he was hit by a linebacker, which was called uh, incorrectly as a roughing the passer resulted in two other unsportsmanlike conduct flags being thrown for the reaction of Tennessee Titans defenders, particularly Brian Arakpo, which was understandably legitimate because the initial call was bad. 
So when you have those flags being thrown for nothing, and at the same time people getting away with much worse and much dirtier play, you have to. I think you have to give the officials some help there to be consistent. No, of course, I understand you entirely. It's kind of similar to how they can go under the hood in the last two minutes if they want to review a play because it's in that time period, uh, maybe extending something like that. Roland, there's a lot of chat about the idea that you know people will push it to the edge and then all it's coming down for the most of these hits is just a, like a fine. Now, it's quite a sizable fine to you and me, but to like a player who's on... Eight nine million a year. A twenty five thousand dollar fine is absolutely nothing if it's going to let him make a big play. Is it a scenario where we need to see similar to? I always worry about saying similar to soccer because I think it's a far inferior game. But like, is it the kind of scenario where we should be looking at empowering referees to more often eject players from games or maybe put more of an emphasis on chow on on uh, punishing coaches and teams? Because if you punish a coach and you punish a team about the action, you know that they're going to go in and make sure it's stamped out in that locker room and it isn't something they do. What would you think? Well, the one thing I disagree with is, is putting this all to replays. There's plenty of replays as there is over any number of, of things. But I think the overall idea that referees should be more willing to eject players engage in dangerous play or at least like something like the Talib uh, incident is a perfect example of where that player should have been ejected and I think the idea of going after coaches is probably one of the best ways to sort this out like we had the comments after the Vikings Rams game about the uh, existence of Greg Williams as a <laughs> continue, continuing existence of Greg Williams as a defensive coordinator and despite his history like and it's the same thing like basically in the NFL as a a whole that players are kept are, are held accountable to some degree to be fines and stuff, but coaches, whenever they do something, effectively have no consequences for their actions, whether that's cheating or whether that's encouraging different types of things. Like with the with like with very few clear cut exceptions, with perhaps the exception of uh, Sean Payton. Like I think that's just probably like the fines aren't being effective, so suspensions are probably necessary. I perhaps wouldn't see these as being. Uh, ideal within the actual game but more like retrospective fines like you do see in most other sports like you see in rugby where a lot of these like more violent sports you can see these kind of same things where they review these after the game and hit them with game like game suspended and that's the kind of thing which I think could have a real effect uh, and going after the coaches as well I think it could have a real effect like I think it's definitely something which there needs to be more accountability because at the moment quarterbacks are protected from everything Wide receivers get some protection, but every other player on the pitch is basically told, you know, if you get hit, it's your own problem. Like every, like the head helmet to helmet action happens between defensive players and running backs all the time, and nothing's done about it. And these players, we, we end up with situations like Tavius Murray happening. Like it might be an idea as well, if, if we're not kind of in favour of extending the number of ejections during games, possibly take a take a leaf from rugby's book and say if you have an egregious tackle or something like that you are removed from the game for for five minutes of of uh, of offensive ball control or something along those lines because they track how much time of possession people have you could remove them for a period of time depending on the severity of their injury similar to how a yellow card would work in rugby and sin bidding someone but yeah like i think it is something that we need to have a long hard look at especially in the off season because there's a balancing thing of making sure the game is fun, exciting and hard-hitting, but also balancing that with player safety and actually trying to get into the heads of these players that this is important. Uh, we will, we'll finish this part up on a slightly narrow note, though. When it, comes to, when it comes to 
violence and uh, and dirty play there is a fantastic story this week Rex Ryan for the upcoming game against the Jets has made IK and Apale a captain for the game uh, here's hoping that if it's Patrick's thumb isn't feeling great and it's Chinu who has to walk over to the middle of the, of the pitch and shake hands with him for the coin toss we're going to move on to the idea of some of the roster changes very particularly uh, we saw the return of JPP this week uh, the Giants were looking a bit more feisty uh, they're going up to New England this week, uh, so that'll be an interesting test for him because because uh, that's a, that's a team that's on a roll. Interestingly, uh, Harry, the Giants are the only team since two thousand and eight that uh, that the New England Patriots have not beaten. That's that's a fun fact for you. Uh, looking mm, forward to seeing fun. you guys in the Super Bowl this year. Um, <laughs> but yeah, what do we make of JPP's return? I actually I, I saw most of that game. He looked okay. Like it definitely wasn't like a bad performance, and he got better as the game went on. But the one thing you did notice is that he, he is afraid to put the padded mitt into the bodies of the defensive players. That he's always he's trying a lot of swim moves and trying to go around the outside, and that he's not really taking contact fully. And it's making it made him a bit of a liability in in run protection, yeah, uh, and run defense. He's definitely still got the, all the physical attributes, and he's obviously a, 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 like a very physical player. But that if he's not if he's not confident in that hand in using it in physical contact, that's always going to be an issue, and it's going to limit him as a as a player, especially against the run. Yeah, no, of course, and like there there, there is an element of this is that essentially. Like he's missed eight or nine weeks of, of game time. He's missed the preseason. He's missed most of the off season training and stuff as well. And he was on when they said he'd be on a snack count. I think he played forty or forty four plays in this game. So it wasn't exactly a limited exposure. Like I was, to be honest, quite impressed at the level he played. In, given that it was his first time back from essentially just being sat in his couch. But uh, but yeah, I do see what you mean that he's slightly more uh, more limited. Uh, we got a couple of other uh, roster changes. Uh, I'll fire one over to Harry here now because I think he, he he remembers this fella back in the day. Rez Welker is now back in the league and he's just signed for the Rams. What's your thoughts, Harry? Yeah, well, I, I remember Wes Welker. I'm not sure Wes Welker remembers Wes Welker. Um, <laughs> I think Wes Welker is really excited now because he's going to go to LA to catch passes from Kurt Warner and play alongside <laughs> Bruce Irvin and, and Tori Holt. Um, I don't think this is ethical. Like, this reminds me of the Austin Collie situation where the Patriots uh, brought Collie back a few years ago after he had basically been cussed out of the league playing with uh, playing with Indianapolis. And I can see this being the same thing. I think we're probably going to see Welker brought in for a game or two. He's going to take a hit, and it's going to be very, very sad, and it's going to be over very quickly. I think when you've had that many concussions, I, like, I know the guy wants to play, and fair enough to him for that. I can understand the desire, and I can understand that he's still got the motivation. But we saw him struggling towards the end with the Broncos. We saw him having to play with special equipment just to avoid getting hurt more. And oh, he yeah, didn't he had a special helmet, he did. didn't he? He had a massive helmet on him, and he didn't look the same anyway. So I think after sitting for that long, coming off of that many concussions and on the downslide of your career, this smacks of desperation from a Rams team that just doesn't have a good receiving unit and is just mm-hmm. lashing out because Kenny Brick keeps dropping the football. Yeah, no, it's, I don't. I, I, I agree with you. I don't think it's going to be a great fit at all. There are, there are a couple more slightly small ones. Uh, Flynn Saturday's back in the league. We've now got Flynn has just joined the Saints because uh, the superstar backup of those uh, telecommunications <laughs> adverts, Kyle, is now gone off with back surgery for the rest of the year. 
So Flynn has now been signed in to be Drew Brees' backup. I think it's probably a very positive sign that Drew Brees has played well in the last two weeks because <laughs> uh, I'm not sure if you want to be falling back on him. We've also got uh, Turbin has now been kicked out an ex-Seahawks uh, player, one of Ronan's crew, has now been turfed out of the Browns. And uh, also an ex-Patriots player, Jonas Gray, has now been turfed out by the Dolphins. So obviously, conspiracy theorists start now. Jonas Gray returns to the Patriots for another, what was it, 300-yard game or something? Uh, it was 250 or so, and then he missed his, slept through, missed, slept through his alarm. Slept through his alarm, alarm and that was, was never seen from never again. Never seen again. Uh, yeah, no, I'm telling you, we're going to bring in Trent Richardson. That'll be the next problem. Yeah, Trent Richardson. <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe there's just some problem with the alarm clocks in New England. I'm, I'm not sure. So we're going to have a look now at, uh, as well, back to, back to the... Possibly the most reprehensible man in the league at the moment. Uh, it's close, uh, but he's definitely the most actively reprehensible at the moment, I think. Greg Hardy watches back. The photos of what he did to his girlfriend came out. And uh, essentially, what little defenders he had, what few defenders he had left, seemed to have uh, seemed to have disappeared. These are horrendous, obviously. Um, the thing that we think is that issue, and the thing I think we're going to have a chat about now, and I'm going to give you, Ronan, on this. Why is it that, because these pictures, while horrifying, don't tell us anything new. Like, they're just consistent with what we already heard happened. Why is it that it's until we get a visual representation, a, a photo or a video or something, that we just kind of go, sure, look, we'll, we'll, we'll put that to one side. We won't give it the gravity that it deserves. Now these pictures are out, everyone is up in arms calling for him to be, to be turfed out of league and going at Dallas for having him on their rosters. What is wrong with us that we need to have this? Ronan? Well, without going into like a, a what a complex discussion about it, simply that it's indisputable evidence. It's like you know when I see it, it's real. Like what what I see is what what it is. And like when we live in a world in which you know descriptions of these events are often sanitized deliberately so as to create you know some sense of doubt or some sense of like this was a like legally it's still now in a gray area because of the entire mess that happened in the court system but once you see the pictures it's very hard to deny that that exists and like i think we just live in a culture where it just that just makes better news and it makes a it makes a better impression on people society is crap I think Ronan has a point. I think that's part of it. Um, I think you see there's a, a huge change from you know everyone defending him. And now I don't know if you saw even the comments from the Eagle, the Eagles lineman. I think it was Jason Kelsey after the game being like, yeah. "We were trying to hurt him." Well, I mean, uh, you know, generally speaking, we uh, as a crew don't like people being hurt on the football field. Probably would make an exception here. Maybe I don't know, but no, that, that's the that's the kind of thing. It's like there's been this sudden change of being sort of a nasty little thing bubbling onto it's just bursting to the surface after a uh, dead spin. I think it was got a hold of the photographs. But I think Ronan is, is right on one level. But I think there's also another thing uh, regarding the indisputable evidence. And not to get into all that sort of too high-minded stuff, there's a very simple thing that happens here is that people don't want to believe something. There's not a question of the viscerality of it. And um, particularly when you're dealing with a guy who's on a team you support, with a guy who you, just by dint of his profession, admire by being a fan of the sport, there's an instinct in people to just say, think, to think the best of the situation, and be like, well, it's bad, but it's not that bad, you know. Oh, nobody got killed. Which is, is terrible. But then when suddenly you're presented with that, you can no longer take the stance of saying, well, we're defending this. And that's also where when these go down to the wider media, the sports media now has to defend itself and sports have to defend themselves against a broader cultural condemnation that doesn't happen when it's just a discussion within the game when these, these photographs aren't plastered all over social media. So that's kind of where it changes. And in this case, quite rightly, for once, um, a lot of fans and media have decided not to defend, not to try and defend their prior position. 
Is it the thing that I just find it weird that, like I said, there's nothing different in these photos from what we already knew and what we heard and what was in evidence and what he was being tried with and everything? Like, I understand the prosecution didn't result in a prosecution because the witness disappeared towards the end and there's suggestions of a payoff and whatnot. I'm just worried because we have saw a very similar thing with the Ray Rice scenario where there was a punishment doled out and people said, look, that's fine. He's done his punishment. He's done his time. Then the video came out and all of a sudden there was a much larger question about, well, is this correct punishment or not? Well, I guess it's not. We better put him away for longer and stuff like that. Like, if we want to ever deal with these issues correctly, we have to be able to deal with them on equal footing with or without video and pictures being the element. The fact that media and essentially media exposure is deciding how seriously we take these crimes and how seriously we punish the individuals involved in them, I think that's a massive problem. And this is just another example of that happening in this league. Well, I suppose there is there is one plus as well. Panthers are now 8-0 without Hardy, and Hardy is 0-4 with the Cowboys. So it turns out you can be a horrible person and be shit at football. So there you go, Dallas. Your only excuse for keeping him on your roster isn't there anymore. Cut the fuck. Karma's agent is Matt Castle. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Right, so we're going to move on to looking at some of the games from last week. Uh, we've got two good games. We've got one sat firmly in the neutral zone, and we've got two dumpster fireside chats. So uh, we're going to open up with uh, Green Bay Carolina, a 29-37 stomper of a game. Very exciting. Green Bay looked terrible in the first half. They were down 27-7 to going into halftime. But then they got back into it in the, in the second half, and it just got very, very exciting. Cam Newton played a good game, but nearly gave it away with three minutes left. It's 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 an old uh, it's an old sports term, but it was essentially a game of two halves. When you see the difference in performance and the difference in competition, like I'll go to I'll go to Ronan first on this one. Like, what did you make of that game, Ronan? What do you think was it? Was it a change in mindset from Green Bay moving into the second half, or was it a change in mindset from Carolina? I thought the second half basically came down that the Panthers' defense looked a bit tired the second half. Like, they have a very good defense, but they don't exactly have the maximum amount of depth along the defensive line. They look down at their feet. I think the other thing is that, like, Green Bay only really had a chance to make this game exciting because Cam Newton had a brain fart. And Cam Newton has been greatly improved this season, and he's definitely laid the entire team on his back. But he is still prone to these occasional lapses of judgment, which make you wonder whether he's capable of taking them. Like right now, they are a like a playoff team, but are they the kind of team which can move from this like incredible start to their season and actually build on that and be, like be a Super Bowl contender? Yeah, no, no. Like, I think Green Bay basically got back into it because Aaron Rodgers, is Aaron Rodgers. But in the end, he just couldn't overcome all of those uh, deficiencies which existed in the first half, uh, especially on defense. Yeah, no, it was interesting to see in a game where Cam Newton played exceptionally well. When you look at the stats afterwards, he only completed 50% of his passes in that game. Like, that's not phenomenal. He had 297 yards, three touchdowns and interception. He rushed for another nearly 60 yards and a touchdown. So, like, it was a good performance. But what I was thinking, Harry, that I thought was quite interesting about this, is looking at this and looking at, is it possible that this game is the game that's going to have decided home field advantage at the tail end of the NFC Championship game? Given that this means now Carolina are two games ahead of Green Bay and they have the tiebreaker on them, so they essentially need a three-game swing 
Uh, very possibly, and I think that's why I think myself, I think a lot of you guys well picked Green Bay last week because we expected them to know what was on the line here, having dropped the game. This is something they need to win to get that home field. Dino definitely has huge, huge playoff implications, uh, well, in terms of who gets home field. Realistically, these teams are still going to be the one two seed. Although, who knows now with the way Arizona in, mm. they could sneak into the question. But no, uh, Carolina absolutely in the driving seat after this. It is interesting when you talk about uh, Cam stats when Fizzle talks about Cam having brain farts. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to give Cam generally a, pass, a bit of a pass on his completion percentage given who he's throwing to. <laughs> yeah. Very drop-prone receiver core who aren't great at getting open. But I, I don't like this idea of, you know, the Green Bay had a chance to get back into the game because of a Cam Newton brain fart. I really don't like that. That reminds me of the stuff around Tony Romo of when a player, you know, drags his team so far but then makes an error that makes the game close or loses a game and then gets blamed for that without necessarily getting the credit because the reason they're in that position in the first place is down to his play. Bear in mind, the only reason that Cam Newton's brain fart made the game close was because Green Bay were already playing better, were already taking advantage of us, uh, as Ronan identified a tired defense and edging their way back into the yeah. game. It was a mistake. It was a mistake lots of quarterbacks make. It was just one that happened to come at a very inopportune time. And that in of itself is a problem, but I wouldn't overplay that in terms of where we go with this, and I'd avoid putting that Tony Romo-type label on it. There is, but there is a problem when you look at the games that Carolina have played so far They've played almost all of them close. Their game against the Seahawks was close. All of their wins against tough teams have been exceptionally close. And when you're playing that type of football and you're playing that close, you can't be making mistakes in those final three or four minutes, especially down the line towards playoffs when people start to up their game even further. Well, I think that's true, but I think that's just a symptom of a team playing above its level. Like The fact that the game is close is a testament to how well Cam Newton and a few others are playing. It is a bit worrying that they've given up two big comebacks the last two weeks. Ronan, what do you make of the fact that Cam Newton decides to steal a 500 quid banner from a veteran? <laughs> a veteran! Bannergate. Yeah. Bannergate. He oh. just basically said, you know, if I went up to Green Bay, you know, you wouldn't see any, like, Panthers Nation stuff up there. Uh, I, believe the, I believe the term he used was, oh. uh, you wouldn't go to McDonald's to buy a Whopper. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that was, the, that was the, the funny analogy I think he had. Yeah, like, it's a non-story, but, you know, that's what you need. Like, that's what people have. You need to have something churning over. I think they'll probably get settled with a hush money will be given to the guy and he'll, he'll be happy enough with that. Bizarrely, I have a feeling that if this was at the start of Cam Newton's career, the headlines would read, Black Quarterback Robs Veteran. <laughs> uh, what, was, what was that tweet you had, Harry, during the game that was very good about... Uh, oh, Teddy Bridgewater ran him for a touchdown, and everyone's going to be like, yeah, he's a mobile quarterback, he's a mobile quarterback. Although that was probably snuffed out when he went for a scramble and got knocked unconscious. <laughs> but yeah, so it was a very good performance from two teams that we both think uh, that we think are both uh, playoff bound. Uh, the next game we looked at, I thought, was an amazing game to watch. Oakland at Pittsburgh, 35-38. to Phenomenally entertaining game. Antonio Brown is above and beyond the best receiver in the game right now. Uh, D'Angelo Williams stepped up his game very well, stepping into the position of Le'Veon Bell. The pair of them went for over 550 yards, which is a record in the NFL. It's the most yardage two players have ever put up together on the same team. But obviously, Ben's out. At least two weeks, they're reckoning possibly four with an injury. I suppose I'll go to Harry first on this one. Like, um, Harry, what did you what did you make of this game? Like, was it was it an issue of resolve and Oakland being too young to hold on to the strong position and capitalize on it? I don't know if it's a question of Oakland's youth. I know I've used this word to describe Oakland a bit. It's fragility, particularly in the defensive backfield, particularly against a team with good, fast receivers and guys who can get open underneath, uh, basically in, in that sort of hook zone kind of flats area. And that's what Pittsburgh do. So it was going to be a difficult matchup for them anyway, just in terms of stylistically. Oakland's fragility is Pittsburgh's strength. It is an incredible testament to Oakland that they hung around in this game 
for as long as they did and made it so close just by being like, you're going to ball out, we're going to ball out. <laughs> We've got a weak secondary, you've got a weak secondary, let's do it. And that was fantastic. So um, I, know, I, don't, I don't think it was youth or inexperience. I think it was just coming up against a tough matchup with two, against a team with two players who were in incredible form. Uh, Roethlisberger and Brown clicking again like we know they can. And DeAndre Williams called it last week. You didn't believe me. Had no problem stepping into that, into that running back role. So it was just a tough matchup for Oakland. And, you know, once they get a bit tougher on that back end, they're going to win games like this. They're not going to let teams put up 38-odd points against them. It's just going to be a few little pieces to fix there, and they're going to be okay. That's fair enough. I, I would I would contend that if you're on a team that is able to throw for over 420 yards, then you're going to get a lot of freedom for any running back to be able to run up the gut in that scenario as well. But I suppose the inverse of that is what I'm going to ask ask Ronan then. Is this a scenario where Pittsburgh got lucky to survive after Ben went out? Surely in a game where you're having this much production, you should be far more dominant. Like, if this is a team whose identity... At least in theory, is that they're a high, they're now a high scoring, high octane offense who don't have that great a defense. Surely, when your players are putting up record breaking offensive numbers, that's how you should be able to win a game. But to run it this close against an Oakland team that has holes like we've discussed, like was this a failure of Pittsburgh instead? Well, I think it shows that the Pittsburgh defense is still very much a work in progress. Like they've certainly been getting, they've certainly been getting better over the season, and they've had some good performances, especially up front. But I think, as Harry pointed out, their secondary is still very much a weakness right now. So what you saw there is that when you have someone like uh, like an ascending quarterback like Derek Carr, which we'll discuss later, and you have weapons like Amari Cooper and a resurgent Michael Crabtree, you're looking at like a team, like you basically had two teams which have got offences which are going very well and which were ideally, well, very well set up to exploit the weaknesses of their opposing defences. And so we got a very exciting game. Uh, I think Oakland is probably weaker on defence and Pittsburgh might have just had an off week. Also, to be honest, I think the fact that Pittsburgh put up so many points probably meant that the defence went a bit conservative too early and then Derek Carr was just able to carve them up on on that level. Like I think it, it, it did look there. Like it did look like the game was over. I think it was sometime in the fourth quarter, and then they came back and they made it a real game. Yeah, I think they were uh, up by ten like, or something. Basically, pure will. But no, I must say, like overall, while there's obviously defensive deficiencies on both sides, these were two very good offenses going at each other. Both offenses looked very good, and I think, like I said last week, these are two teams that are in the hunt for wildcard spots here in in in, in the AFC, and they. Both looked very much the type of teams that you'd be worried about catching in a wild card round in case they just went off on you for that week. So we're going to move into the neutral zone now. This is a game that we were very close to putting into the good section, which terrifies me because it's between Tennessee and New Orleans. It was 34-28 in overtime. It was exciting to watch. Drew Brees looked like the Drew Brees of old. The Titans somehow kept catching passes that had previously been caught by cornerbacks of the New Orleans Saints. Young players stepped up for them. Doyle Green Beckham looked very good during this game. Is this just a story of two terrible defences, Harry? Yeah, uh, pretty much. Um, it's a story of two terrible defences and a whole lot of luck. Like On the one hand, credit to Delaney Walker for having reactions, cat-like reactions. On the other hand, like... Why are you letting Delaney Walker catch three tipped balls? <laughs> like, yeah, it, it, it was just, again, Breeze looked good for the second week in a row. Mariota looked like he really elevates. The, the Tennessee team just looked so much more mm. confident and comfortable with Mariota under center than Mettenberger. But it was just a story. And I think this to me why it's not a good game is that the, the offenses were, to a large extent, made to look good 
by frequently very, very poor defensive play. And I think that was just epitomized by the fact that it was the Saints' defensive blunders not only repeatedly let Tennessee get back into the game, but ultimately allowed them to, to win it. I don't know how Rob Ryan still has his job at this stage in the season, particularly after that defeat, because that defensive unit is just, at this stage, beyond dysfunctional. Tennessee have some nice, one or two nice pieces in Gerard Green Beckham, who's on, uh, rising up a little bit, and Walker, who's incredibly solid. Beyond that, don't have a huge amount. You shouldn't mm. be letting Justin Hunter go off on you. It's it's worrying. Yeah, I, like, I found it interesting, because looking at this game, it seemed like two teams that were running very similar, very similarly styled teams, defensive deficiencies, exciting yet haphazard offenses that don't have the weapons that they're used to having, but still trying to make the best of a bad scenario. If we had looked at this game, and even when we were going into it this week, we were looking at it and thinking, this is going to be gack, right? And it turned out to be very, if not the best technical game of football, (laughs) a very exciting game to watch. And we're seeing these guys, like we said, New Orleans seeing that what they need to do is score quite a bit. Tennessee doing a similar approach as well. What is it, uh, Ronan? Because I haven't seen too much change in personnel here, apart from obviously the coaching at Tennessee. What's allowed these guys to turn it around? Because like, because New Orleans would have just been a presumed win on everyone's schedule, and Tennessee would have been pretty much the same after week three or so. Like, what what do you think has changed with them? I think that Marcus Mariota is the major change. I think he's given them hope. He's given them an identity. Like, if you look at that offense, there isn't really that much. Like, you have some ascending pieces, as Harry points out, but they're playing Antonio Andrews at running back, and he <laughs> moves at, like, glacial speed towards the line of scrimmage. And yeah, he still managed to make over 80 yards this week and is now there effectively at their lead running back. Like, I think basically Mike Malarkey, who they, like, obviously they fired their head coach, Wizenhunt, and they brought in Malarkey. There's no, they have nothing to lose right now, so they're, act, like, they're actually just, like, willing to let Marcus Mariota do something and basically see this as a development year. And we see that when you let him go and let him, like, use his spread off, like, more spread offense principles, he can do some pretty good things. And it also helps these playing against the Saints defense who have some really bad pieces like Brandon Browner probably being one of the key aspects, the most heavily penalized player in the NFL right now. There's just got, it's just a horrible defense. And I think like the Titans have the uh, confidence right now with Mariota to actually think, okay, we can actually win a couple of games and actually make a good show of this. Uh, I think it's, I think it's mainly an attitude thing and that they're not in, you know, the Browns, or Browns or Lions, like quagmire stage of being a bad team. Like I said, not the most technically proficient game, but a very exciting one to watch. And if you've got red zone or access to the condensed game, this is a good fun one to fire on because it just, it reminded me quite a bit of watching the old Drew Brees in like kind of tight games back in like 06 and 07 and stuff. It was great fun. Okay, so we're now going to move into the dumpster fireside chats. And boy, do we have some of these this week. We're going to start off with uh, Harry's favorite game of the weekend. Atlanta at San Francisco, 16 to 17. Blaine Cabbard is back, baby. 49ers line looked so much better. They didn't allow a single sack. Although many of that would just put it on the fact that they fucking hate Colin Kaepernick. Uh, the defense stepped up a bit too. They managed to shut Devontae Freeman down to only 12 yards rushing. Like, how did this happen? I thought that they were just playing like ball boys and equipment managers for defense up to this point. He did have 67 receiving yards and a touchdown. But like, you stop one of the best running backs in the league at the moment for 12 yards. Uh, so I've got two kind of direct questions. I'll start with Ronan on this one, I suppose. Ronan, what the fuck happened? Basically, the Atlanta team just doesn't has seemed to hit like a skid for some reason, and Matt Ryan uh, has seemed to hit his skid because Matt Ryan's one of these players who I don't know people just like seem to think he's just good, 
but don't really question it. But he does seem to have large stretches where he just isn't very good, where he seems indecisive. And when things aren't going his way, like this defense, we know it doesn't have the ability to get to the quarterback. And a defense which can't get to the quarterback will eventually get shown up. So I think like the San Francisco defense has been sneaky underrated in games this season. Like They managed to hold uh, Green Bay at home to a fairly uh, small amount of points, and basically it was just their dysfunctional offense which held them back. So having a quarterback in there who isn't completely shot, uh, surprisingly enough, who's like, uh, and having players there who are playing literally for their NFL careers give them something better. Like Basically, they've replaced a lot of pieces who were just there for the ride, who've been there since the Jim Harbaugh era, and given a load of players who, this is literally their last chance to loon, a chance to like show their stuff, and because of that, maybe that was simply enough to put up a decent offensive uh, output against a relatively mediocre defense. Like I think, like this is Blaine Gabbert's Matt Flynn ticket to become a backup for many years to come. So I think he'll be very glad of all the million dollar checks he'll be getting from that. Fair enough, fair enough. Now I know Harry was very excited by the prospect of Blaine Gabbert playing here. Uh, it was it was exciting. He was watching it on the couch beside me with absolute glee. Harry, what were your takeaways from this Battle of the Titans? Well, you know, I, I haven't heard, I was I was wrong last week. We were all wrong last week. The Blaine train is rolling on. It's going to be amazing at the end of the season when the Washington Football Club trades the first round pick to make him their starter. <laughs> it's going to be glorious. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if the Falcons defense got showed up so much. Uh, Gabbert looked okay, uh, still threw a couple of picks, he was fine, the Falcons just couldn't get anything really going themselves. It was bizarre watching him throw like touchdown passes to Garrett Selleck and all this stuff, yeah. like it was equipment managers and water boys, it was about that level. And yeah, these guys perhaps a bit motivated, playing for their playing for their careers and whatnot. You've got to feel bad for Colin Kaepernick as well. They brought him on for one play, and it's funny you say, you know, does the team just hate him? Because he actually, he came for one play when Gabbert took a hit and they took him out. Um, Kaepernick threw one pass, it was a deep pass, it was a really nice pass, it was right where it needed to be. And the receiver just dropped it. Did he do it on purpose? I don't know. But it's kind of fitting in with how they're treating him. But it, it definitely sucks to come on, get booed, and then hear Blaine Gabbert get cheered when he gets back onto the pitch. It is unfortunate. Like, Kaepernick is, I think at this stage, definitely done in, in the Bay Area. I think he'll land somewhere else. He's got a lot of talent. He's got a lot of potential. We saw it. He's been to the Super Bowl. He can play. He needs to work on the more mental side of his game. He needs to just get a bit more understanding of what to do in different situations, take some time out, work with some more coaches in the offseason, hopefully find a landing spot. Because he's a very exciting player, and I would like to see him continue in the league, and I would like to see him be able to succeed in the league. But not. But he needs to be able to adapt to running outside of that play-action college-style offense. Pretty interesting to see you all agreeing with exactly what I said about him a couple of weeks ago when we got this question in on the mailbag. He's going to land somewhere else. Yeah, he's done, he's done in, 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 in San Fran. He's going to land somewhere else. He's going to sit behind someone for a year, probably, just basically relearn because he has all the physical tools. The biggest problems he was making were mental errors and not processing correct. Uh, just the final thing on this game, just to revisit Ronan's fabulous question, are Atlanta super legit and going to the Super Bowl? No, Ronan. Once again, this is further proof that your question was stupid. But, <laughs> but looking at their playoffs, at the, at the schedule, I still think there's a strong chance that this team makes the playoffs, which is worrying. The rest of their schedule is now looking worse than it did beforehand because it's Colts who looked a bit better, Vikings who look a bit better, Bucks who look a bit better, Panthers twice who look a lot better, 
Jags who look a bit better and the Saints who look a bit better. But the thing is, they've already got six wins, so it's going to be hard yeah, you to. You said that the Andrew Luck was just uh, announced to be out for two to six weeks, so that'll probably make it a lot easier. It will, yeah. Like, is it Dan Orlovsky? <laughs> no, it's Matt, no. Matt Hasselbeck. Matt Hasselbeck, Matt Hasselbeck. who look, has looked like reasonably functional where he's appeared this season. Like, the thing is, you can look at any of those games and be like, oh, they could win this one. But then you look at the team, you're like, yeah, but they're not quarterbacked by Blaine Gabbert. So Atlanta could lose that one as well. Yeah, that's the thing. Um, so we'll see. We'll see. But yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see how they progress over the rest of the season. And now on to the last game from last week that we're going to discuss. Fucking dreadful game at that. Uh, St. Louis at Minnesota. An 18-21 overtime win for Minnesota. This was so boring to watch. Like, I couldn't watch all of it. I watched some of it, and then I watched highlights and kind of shortened versions for the rest. It was god-awful. The Vikings seem like a mediocre team that have a good record at the moment. Uh, like, I've got, I've got a question. So, Harry, did you care about this game at all? Well, I cared about it insofar as that, once again, I wanted to see if my judgment on the Rams came true. And again, yes, again, they should, won. They should have won. They lost. But no, it was very difficult to get any, any way invested in a game that was just this stodgy. Yeah, Ronan, did you give a shit about this game? Well, it's an NFC opponent, so it's always good to see them go down. But on the other hand, Minnesota, like it's, it obviously is the Seahawks are in 4 and 4. It was incredibly important in terms of how that will shake up in terms of wildcard and division implications. Yeah. You know, uh, the actual game itself, smash mouth football, but the offenses, especially the Rams offense, is so tepid, it's very hard to get invested in it. Nick Foles is just awful to watch. Mm. This would be an excellent game to watch if you just woke up in a coma from the 1970s and you're afraid of change, right? <laughs> like, that's exactly the kind of football game this was. The only thing that I found interesting, I was, trying, I was scrambling to find anything interesting about this game. The only thing that was interesting is that it's literally one of the most evenly matched football games I've ever seen. I'm going to throw some stats at you now, right? Time of possession, 32 minutes and 27 seconds to 33 minutes and 13 seconds. They had 14 drives each. They were 4.6 yards per yards per play to 4.7 yards per play. They had 54.5% completion on one side and 55% completion on the other side. One side had 36 rushes, the other had 35 rushes. And the only major difference is one had 4.4 yards per carry and one had 4.1. It was an evenly matched te- game between teams that were fucking awful and no one should ever, ever want to watch this game. Uh, if you have it saved, if you have an online pass or anything, like either delete this or burn whatever you're planning to watch it on because it will <laughs> infect it with awful. So we're going to move on to some questions from uh, from the mailbag from some of our listeners. Uh, so we've got two I think we're going to do this week because most of the other ones were covered off in, in some of the news sections earlier. So our first one comes in from Danny Gleason. You might remember him from, uh, from the Live at Wembley stuff yesterday or last week. He said, uh, what were the best and worst off-season moves? Was firing Jim Harbaugh the worst? I suppose I'll fire it over to uh, Harry first on this one. Like, What would you say were the best and worst moves? Now, obviously... There's still another half of the season to go, plus the playoffs, so stuff could come good, stuff could go bad. But at the moment, where do you think? Uh, I'll start I'll start this backwards. In terms of organizational dysfunction, it's hard. Like Harbaugh's an interesting one because he kind of like he was so at war with the Niners organization that it was kind of inevitable that he left. The fact that they've gone even further downhill since he did probably shows that it might not have been the best thing in the world. But by the time it got to that stage, the damage was already done. So I don't know if it was a bad off-season move per se. I think the 
erosion of his authority leading up to that had been had been the problem. And um, in terms of other candidates for the worst, like again Tim Tebow, Chip Kelly's descent into insanity, I think, was probably not to think not Tebow is a ceased example, but the Eagles in general in terms of their off season moves were just crazy. Like getting rid of McCoy bringing in Murray has turned out to be a, a really bad move. Getting rid of, of their, a lot of their just best skill position players. Yeah. Just a genuine mystifying thing. The entire trading for Sam Bradford. Bizarre. I don't know if I can put my finger on which one of those is the worst, but I think taken as a whole, that's kind of been the, the problem for Philly. Ronan? So for best, for best and worst, I'm going to stay in the AFC East, and I'm going to stay with coaching decisions. I think the best coaching decision, like I think the best decision in the offseason was hiring Todd Bowles. I think if you compare the Bills and the Jets were Bills. The Bills obviously hired Rex Ryan and the Jets hired Todd Bowles. Both of them are probably at similar talent levels and at similar uh, kind of levels of progression in terms of like the, like what they actually have. But like the Jets are five and three, but you don't hear a lot about them. If they were five and three with Rex Ryan, it will be all over the news and Rex Ryan will be talking about how they're going to win the Super Bowl and how they're going to take on everyone and they're going to take on the Patriots and it's going to be amazing, whatever like that. Todd Bowles is there and that isn't an issue. And this is a team which had the Geno Smith incident in the offseason, which signed Brandon Marshall, and which has gone 5-3. and three. Like, when you talk about a player's coach, that's a player's coach who gets the job done, keeps everyone on side, not the player's coach, and in inverted commas, it's Rex Ryan, who's really a media coach, who loves himself so much that he takes away from the overall stability of the team. Even though the Bills have put up some really good games, and actually look like they probably have more talent on their team. They just look fragile because they go as Rex Ryan goes. And Rex Ryan is a fragile coach in my mind. He's a coach who, when things start going badly, makes things worse, doesn't pull them back from that. In terms of the worst offseason move, I think it was a move that didn't happen, which is that the Miami Dolphins didn't get rid of Joe Philbin. It was very obvious that this was a half-hearted uh, attempt from the ownership to show cont- continuity, that they somehow like wanted to stick with their coach or stick with their man, when it was very obvious that they didn't actually believe in Joe Philbin, that they, like, that they what they saw was mediocrity, and they basically hoped on a prayer that things would be different because they signed in Dominica and Sue, which could obviously be also be a contender for worst off-season move based on what's happened so far. But I could see that coming good with the right coaching. And if you're not going to be behind your coach when things get a little bit rough, then you basically, you should never kept that coaching staff in the first place. Now they basically have a, like they have a season where they have all of this money spent on players, a season which probably isn't going to go anywhere. And uh, like runners up would be like for best would be, uh, would be Todd Gurley for the Rams. And like the, the the worst would probably be the Texans letting Ryan Fitzpatrick go at this stage. Yeah, no, of course. Uh, sorry, Harry. I just realised we didn't actually get your good one. We just got your angry rant. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no worries. It's something out of energy after that. So yeah, it's not a um, again similar similar enough. It's a, it's a move that didn't really happen. It was sort of a, a maintaining of the status quo, and perhaps it was never the likeliest thing to happen. And perhaps it was the obvious thing, but there was an awful lot of Ferrari and an awful lot of smoke screens about it. And that was the Vikings keeping hold of Adrian Peterson after everything that had happened. A guy who, you know, was coming off a serious injury, was coming off a beating up your child suspension, which is not great. And a guy who was, you know, perhaps a little bit past his prime, although still very good. And um, so if you're going to ship him off, you know, now is now is kind of the time. Uh, and a guy with a big contract as well. They made the decision to keep hold of him, which was, you know, perhaps unethical, but purely football stance made a lot of sense. It's allowed them to continue to build the team and, you know, take the pressure off Teddy Bridgewater a bit. 
uh, especially during his struggles earlier in the season. They, they, like The Vikings would not be anywhere close to that position if they decided that they were going to rebuild. Now is not the time to do that. When you're building around a young quarterback and you've got a very strong half, keep that going. It was a really, really sensible move. They held off the overture of the Dallas Cowboys. And that's sort of been... Yeah, so Danny, my take on this, probably the... I agree that the Jim Harbaugh firing was probably a mistake looking at how it's gone for them, but there was a problem of even if even though he's a better coach, there was no love for him in that locker room. The players weren't going to work with him. Like, there was reasons other than his ability to coach a football team that caused that, so I wouldn't put that as the worst, I suppose. I've got, I've got two for the best because I'm very close... I think one of the best was allowing Ike to punch Geno Smith in the mouth because the success of Ryan Fitzpatrick in that offense is taking them so much further than I think Geno Smith could have. But I think probably the one that was the best and happened at the very beginning of it was uh, the re-signing of Woodson by the Raiders. I think that was a call that was difficult to make. He was an old... like He's 39 for Christ's sake, right? And they said, look, no, we want to keep this here. We've got our young players. We need some veteran leadership. And he's been playing out of his skin this year. So I think that was probably the best one. In terms of the worst off-season moves, I agree with Ronan that they probably should have gotten rid of Philbin a lot earlier. That was something that they can see right now that's kicking them in the arse because of the fact that they didn't get it, uh, that they didn't get a full off-season with a new coach. A very close second in this one is the signing of Greg Hardy. That was terrible. I think it was a mistake. I think we're seeing that coming home to roost now. And a lot of the information that is now in the media was available to them at that time. They discussed it with them and they were still happy to make that call. I think that was a mistake. But overall, the worst decision of the offseason was the Jimmy Graham trade between Seattle and the Saints. Uh, the Saints have came out to the better on that trade. But even at that, it's a scenario where they've now got a very good center who can't do shit for them because they're not really that good a team. Seattle haven't been able to use uh, be able to use Jimmy Graham, and all they've actually really achieved is to worsen their run game and put themselves in a more precarious position to actually make postseason. So I think that was probably the worst decision made in the offseason. Uh, the second question we have today is from Tosi, and Tosi asks us, what is Derek Carr's ceiling? Uh, this is obviously talking about Derek Carr, quarterback of the Oakland Raiders, a very, very, very good-looking young quarterback, uh, and he's also quite a good football player. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, just 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 for reference sake, uh, his touchdown interception ratio at the moment is nineteen to four. Like this is a chap who's playing exceptionally well. I would say he has a very high ceiling. I at the moment I don't see him as being like a superstar top three kind of quarterback. I think he possibly could develop into that. I think a lot of his stats are being padded by the fact that he's now got Amari Cooper, who is a top end receiving threat, which is helping him out quite a bit. They've got a run game going there, which is good as well. And I also think even though they're doing well now, the Raiders, because they are for the last ten or twelve years been so poor, a lot of teams go to them expecting to get an easier game than they do and maybe don't prepare for them as well as they potentially should but I would say Derek Carr's ceiling is by the time he gets to his next contract he'll be bringing in above above your mid-tier section he'll be he'll be pulling in something like maybe in Matt Ryan money it's hard to tell at the stage of a quarterback's career obviously there are so many ups and downs as to how good somebody's going to be in the long run but if Carr keeps going in this direction not to over oversell this or react or anything he's going to have a Hall of Fame career simple as that I mean you can say yes he's got Amari Cooper Manning had Marvin Harrison, you've got like like uh, Randy Moss for his time in the Patriots, and Jerry Rice in San Fran. All the like great quarterbacks have had great receivers that they're throwing to. So I don't think that's really a, a knock against them. And yeah, like he's showing incredible potential. He's and he's showing a really mature approach to the game at a young stage, which is really critical. 
his ability to read the field, his ability to make plays and make good decisions regularly. While playing for a team that isn't really, it still isn't all that good, although potentially extremely explosive. So yeah, if he keeps going in this direction, it's it's a Hall of Game fame career as far as I'm concerned. He's going to end up in Canton unless he either regresses severely or gets hurt. Okay, uh, like my, my my concern is I don't think in the second year you can make that call. Oh, like I said that. I, no, I, I, I said that. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it is very difficult to make call. That's why I said if he if he continues in this trajectory. Uh, and and like what 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 I mean by the padding the stats with with Mario Cooper and stuff like that, it isn't that that having a good quarter having a good receiver negates how good a quarterback someone can be. But I think especially when it's at this early stage and you make allowances for for quarterbacks and stuff. It allows them to seem significantly better okay. than they would be. Ronan, what's your take on Derek Carr? Uh, well, my overall idea as a statistician would be that the prediction interval is so large that it could be all the way from best of all time to you know fairly mediocre. If I was to like put a like a player uh, prediction, I would see him kind of maybe having something like a Philip Rivers career. He'll be exceptionally good, but it will come down to the teams that are put around him. Hopefully he's not as unlucky as Philip Rivers in the sense that he's been put with a lot of bad teams. And obviously with the Raiders, you would hope that maybe they've turned a corner in terms of talent valuation and stuff like that, and things like that. He's definitely someone who will be at least in, like should be in the hall of good, probably in the hall of very good, and then perhaps if things break his way in the hall, a hall of fame. I think he's definitely a player who has all the physical tools, who has like all who has all the physical tools, who seems to have the mental disposition for it so if he's given the right situation which he's been given right now you could really see him thrive and really have uh, like a top a top tier career yeah. uh, like like someone like Philip Rivers the only reason Philip Rivers is good is because he learned ex- early on exactly how to keep driving and stuff have 19 kids and then you have to play well to feed them right otherwise <laughs> you'll just get fired that's the trick to being a fairly decent quarterback see, I don't know I think you, your cars like children is like dental work he will require a lot of dental work to uh, ever become a Tom Brady style player. <laughs> <laughs> See, you know, I, I would have thought that Philip Rivers would actually be doing better behind like a really crappy O line like he is right now because he clearly just doesn't believe in protection. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good lord! So we're going to move over to uh, to our pick section for next week. So we've got. Uh, Probably the most divided we've been so far, I think. Uh, we've got a couple of consensus picks, and we've got six that we disagree on at the moment. So we'll run through the consensus ones nice and quick, and I'll go to you guys in turn just to why you're picking that. So we've got Jags at the Ravens. We've all taken the Jags. Uh, Ronan, why is that? Because the Ravens have literally no one to throw to. Mm. So the Jags, like, they've underperformed this season, but they should be good enough to take on a Ravens team, which doesn't really have anything to do on offense. Okay, perfect. Uh, the next game we're looking at is Panthers at the Titans. We've all taken the Panthers. Harry? Yeah, well, the Titans might be a bit better than we thought after last week, but Carolina keep finding ways to win and keep playing at a high level, so they shouldn't have, a tr- they shouldn't have any trouble here. Yeah, the next game we're looking at is Bears at the Rams. We've all taken the Rams in this one. I'm surprised Harry didn't flip on this one because <laughs> he never likes the Rams. Uh, basically, talent-rich team who underperform. Bears, talent-poor team who underperform. Uh, so the edge has to go to the Rams. I think the loss of Forte and stuff is going to hurt them. And I think the Rams are due for a win. The next one is Cowboys at Buccaneers. We've all taken the Buccaneers. Why is that, Roman? Is it because Matt Castle is the arbiter of morals or something? Of, of karma. Yeah, basically a combination of Matt Castle's inept play and the Greg Hardy controversy continuing to basically pull down a team which doesn't really have anything positive going for you now means that an ascending Bucks team should have enough to take them on. Uh, five losses in a row. Let's see if we can make it six, Cowboys. So we've got Lions and Packers. We've all taken the Packers. Harry? 
Before we get into that, I'm just going to say, if Matt Castle is the arbiter of karma, something very, very nasty is going to happen to Winston in that game. <laughs> but uh, no, uh, look, Lions at Packers. Uh, yeah, look, you've got to feel bad for the Lions. The Packers are going to be furious after the last two games. The Lions are a bad, bad team who are going to bear the absolute brunt of Aaron Rodgers' apocalyptic rage. It's going to be very ugly. Uh, the next game we've got is Dolphins and Eagles. Uh, we've all taken the Eagles. Dolphins are in a bit of a tailspin. Started to see that there's not so much that changing your coach midseason can do for you. Eagles looking a bit better, as we said beforehand. Defense looking a bit more solid. They're using the correct running backs a little bit more. While not great teams either side, I think the Eagles are also at home, so we're giving the edge to the Eagles. And with that, I'll go to Harry for the next game. I was so <laughs> tempted to call the other way in this one just for the crack. Uh, Patriots at Giants. We've all taken the Patriots. Harry? You know what? I was a little bit tempted to call this one the other way because we're going to have a banana peel game and this looks like this is the most likely to be the banana peel game. On the other hand, the Giants' defense is trash at the moment and their offense is fine. So I think we'll just be able to outscore them. Like The reason the Giants have historically done well against the Patriots is they've had a very, very good pass rush. The Giants right now do not. Ronan, we're going to give you the last consensus game. Texans at the Bengals. We've all taken the Bengals. Why is that? Bengals good. Texans bad. Look at records. Enough said, really. Yeah, that'll do for me, to be honest. Andy Dalton might be 2-0 and in primetime after oh, this. Oh, wow, yeah. I know, I know. And, and then the week afterwards, we get the Ginger on Ginger primetime special, which would be phenomenal. Yeah. So we're going to get into our contested picks this week, so six of them. We'll stick at the start with uh, Bills at Jets, Thursday night football. Uh, in division, should be a bit of fun. I've taken Buffalo, you two boys have taken the Jets. Uh, Harry, why have you taken the Jets? I think the Jets look like a better team at the moment. Yeah, Buffalo look better with, with Taylor back. Like, this is two teams with reasonably good offences. Buffalo, nice, of course, nice having Sammy Watkins back as well. But also two tough defences. I think what we've seen from the Jets this season on defence has been more consistent than what we've seen from the Bills. Although, sometimes the Bills may seem to have a higher ceiling. Rex going back to the Meadowlands is going to make this a very interesting game. It's going to be a very fun game, probably a very violent game. With the emotional intensity surrounding it and Buffalo's general propensity towards indiscipline, I think the Jets are going to be tight they're going to be slick and they're going to have enough to just gut this one out. Yeah, like I, I, I fully get what you're saying there, and like I agree, it's going to be quite emotional going back up there. It's going to be a highly charged game. It's a Thursday night, so God knows anything can happen in those games as well. Where I take issue would be, I'd say Buffalo have a up and down, have a stronger roster than the than the Jets do at the moment. When you're saying the Jets' defense is at least more consistent, they've been horrendously gashed the last two weeks by two teams in a row. Uh, Buffalo were getting their run game going exceptionally well the last file. last like last week they had 200 yard rushers and the Jets haven't been able to stop the run the last two weeks as well we're seeing good jobs happening from uh, from the receivers there Tyrod's back and they're a bit more exciting it's a spot where I would I would genuinely like to pick the Jets here because I prefer their team to it as you said I'm not the world's biggest Rex Ryan fan in the world but it's just a spot of I think the Jets are cooling down they're not doing as well as they possibly should be, and I think I think it's just going to be edged in by Buffalo going back up there. Ronan, like I think coming back to what I said earlier on about Todd Bowles, I think like the Jets are just just look like a team which can take things in their stride, while Buffalo are very much a form team. I mean, they have one good game, but you kind of worry that. With all of the different storylines going on here, and with Shady looking perhaps a little like he might be out for the game, the Jets might just shade it, like basically based on a bit more stability, a little bit more confidence that this is a team that will, can actually show up when the chips are down. 
Fair enough, fair enough. The next game we're uh, we're in contention about again. I'm on my own on this one. Uh, it's Browns traveling up to the Steelers for uh, for a bit of a bit of a scrap in division. Uh, I've taken the Browns in this game, uh, taking on my role as uh, let's defend the shitty team that brings nothing but sadness uh, in the absence of Dave. And you two guys have taken Pittsburgh. Uh, so I'll start with uh, Ronan on this one. Why did you take Pittsburgh? Look, I think it's it's much closer because obviously we're talking about Landry Jones here, quarterback. But I think like the Browns haven't really shown a lot. Johnny Football hasn't really shown a lot. I think he's starting this game, so like I think it's still up in the air. But he'll probably start this game, and he hasn't. He's looked okay, but he hasn't looked great. I just think like this this Browns team is currently in basically what is now a traditional mid-season slump, where they just don't look like they have any hope. They don't look like they have a team that's on the rise. And Pittsburgh have a lot more to play for. I think like the talent on the offense will eventually show against the Cleveland defense, which has managed to underperform and which is dealing with a few injury uh, problems at the moment. Yeah, like, like I get it entirely. This is a very, very close call for me on whether or not to take the Browns. What I think is, this is an in-division game. They always play them very tough historically, even when they're having worse seasons than this. They've beaten and ran close to the Steelers. I think the loss of Ben is a big issue in this game, Uh because what I don't think Landry Jones is a particularly good quarterback. I said this beforehand. This strikes me a lot like the game whenever they had Landry Jones and they went down to play the, the Chiefs in that I think the Browns have a decent defense. They now have their quarterbacks and DBs back in after missing two of them to concussion last week. Uh, so I think that's going to be a problem for the young quarterback. I get that there's a good run game from the Steelers. Landry Jones can't push the ball deep to Brown, so Bryant is going to get a lot of the looks. Because they have the cornerbacks to cover him, I think that will be manageable to a certain extent and allow them to dedicate an extra man to the box to try and stop D'Angelo Williams. If they win, it'll be a close game. It'll be because the defense steps up and causes problems for the young quarterback. If they can't get that going, the Steelers' offense will just roll over them. I go back to go back to something I think Dave said last week. You know, AFC, uh, sorry, um, FC North game in November. It's going to be a physical game. It's going to be a close, low-scoring game. It's one where Pittsburgh have the edge in that kind of game. They are a more physical team than Cleveland. Still, they have a better running game than Cleveland. And Cleveland have struggled to stop the run a lot this season. I think Ron has a very good point that Cleveland have sort of gone into this bit of a slump without any direction or a little bit of disarray you saw it towards the end of the window they tried to trade their two best defensive linemen for yeah. no discernible reason whatsoever and I think they've just sort of, they're sort of just once again just sort of meandering through this bit of the season without knowing what they're doing yes they will be fired up for a Steelers game absolutely but because of the strength of the run relative difference in the run game and because of the fact that well yeah you're not going to be able to go deep to Antonio Brown Antonio Brown movement of the slot play him on those short routes match him up with you know uh, Nickel or Dimebacks or outside linebackers if you can and get him, get him across the middle, and let him, let him do his thing in the same way that Jones was able to let Martavis Bryant do his thing a few weeks ago. Fair enough. Uh, the next game we've disagreed on is Saints at Washington. I've taken New Orleans. Harry's taken Washington, and Fitz has taken New Orleans. So I suppose I'll kick off on this one. Uh, New Orleans are looking good. Uh, well, at least better the last little while. Um, their offense is firing quite well. So I think they can compete. Uh, I think New Orleans won't be able to stop them particularly well. But in the end up, I just have more faith in a shootout in Drew Brees than I do in uh, than I do in Kirk Cousins. I agree with some of what you're saying. I, I think we're seeing better things from the Saints' offense. I think Washington have a not only have a better defense than the Saints, I think they have a significantly better defense than the Saints this year. And I think they're going to be able to do a little bit of damage there. What we have seen for Washington is they've got involved in... They're able to make games close and they're able to make games ugly 
against, particularly against teams that have bad defenses that sort of just let them kind of bumblefuck their way into a game, which is what the Saints are very, very good at doing, just letting other teams sort of flap around and still score points, which has been the kind of game Washington has won. Um, in terms of the Saints' offense, I think this is a, FedEx Field is a pretty tough place to play and has been a tough place for teams to go this season. The Saints' confidence is going to be a bit low coming off of losing to Tennessee, and I think Washington could do a similar thing to what Tennessee did to them. So, yeah, I think I would agree to a certain extent with Harry that the Washington defense is a little bit underrated. Washington's offense is looking pretty terrible right now. And even against a mediocre, like, New Orleans like offense, like, I think Kirk Cousins will continue to wilt and continue to show that he's not the future of that team. So I think on balance, New Orleans will, will take it based on that. Our next game that we're going to have a disagreement about is the Vikings at the Raiders. We've had a last-minute switch-up on these. I've taken the Oakland Raiders. Harry's taken the Oakland Raiders. And uh, you have taken the Vikings. So uh, I suppose, Harry, I'll start off with you. Uh, Why have you taken the Oakland Raiders? Look, I I said last week I think Minnesota have a pretty decent defense. I think their offense is also pretty decent. I think Oakland have a significantly worse defense, but a significantly better offense than Minnesota do. The three, and this is just a very simple calculus. The differential between Oakland's offense and Minnesota's offense is more in Minnesota's. Fa- it's, I'm sorry, it's more in Oakland's favor than the difference differential between Minnesota's defense and Oakland's defense. And on that basis, I think Oakland are just going to be able to outgun them. Simple as that. Fair enough. Ronan, Minnesota? It's going to be a very close game. Minnesota, like it, it does depend to a certain extent if Teddy will be going through concussions still and whether he'll have to start Sean, H- Sean Hill or not. And it also depends to a certain extent on whether Oakland have Latavius Murray back or not. So there's a lot of question marks over this game right now. But I think like the Minnesota team like have fronted up pretty well. They have the momentum. And I think Oakland, like, I still don't trust Oakland uh, to really follow through in a tough game. When it's come down to the crunch games, like in the Pittsburgh game, they just haven't been able to finish them off. And I think against a good, a, like a good Minnesota team, they probably will just come up just short. Yeah, like um, just in answer to your two queries, at the moment, uh, from what I'm gathering, both have cleared concussion protocol and both will be playing. What I see happening here is I can see Minnesota running over, uh, running over Oakland. They haven't been great against the run and seeing uh, see, seeing them have a good game on the ground. The problem is I see them as being quite a one-dimensional offense. There's not a huge amount that Teddy Bridgewater is doing for them. Like He's a decent quarterback, but he's not fantastic. I think Oakland have a much more powerful offense than they do, a much more rounded offense than they do. I do think they have okay pieces in their defense that will... They go for it. I think even if Minnesota go for a heavy ground game and are getting traction in that in that way, I don't see that as being necessarily a way to beat a Raiders team that can then take what is a weak Vikings defense through the air with uh, with relative ease. I also think Oakland are going to be very pissed off after losing that game to to Pittsburgh, and again was very winnable, and they know they're well aware of the fact that they are in the hunt for these wildcard spots and they need to be winning these games because the back end of their slate is quite difficult. So they need to be beating teams like this to stay in there. Uh, so yeah, I'm going to go with Oakland. We've now got our two other picks that we disagree on. Uh, these are the homer picks because they always are. I've taken Kansas City when Kansas City travel up to the Broncos. Harry and Fitz have taken Denver. Harry, I'll let you go first. I know what you're going to say about Kansas City and I'm not going to disagree with a lot of it. However, what we saw Denver do defensively against Indianapolis, that was one week. And I'm not going to call this on the basis of one week. I think they will. I think that was a bit of a blip, and I think they'll go back to the mean 
of just playing very high level defensive football, even with a few guys suspended and a few guys missing and whatnot. Kansas City, while looking more comfortable in offense than they did earlier, are still not the best equipped team in the world to take that apart. So I think Denver will just again shut them down a bit and then sort of just you know, grind out a win like they've been like they've been able to do this season. No, I, I agree with you entirely, and I think that was that's my concern. This is quite a speculative pick for me, but it's one that I. The more I thought about it, the more I could justify a bit in my head, but that's always the way of these things. You justify things in your head, even though you really shouldn't. Kansas City had a great game against the Lions, but it was the fucking Lions, so it doesn't really count for much. Uh, But they looked a lot more together on offense. The defense were coming together in a much more complete way than we've seen since, since probably the last Broncos game. They're a unit that's going to cause a lot of problems. They're a far better unit than the Colts unit that took on the Broncos last week were. In terms of dealing with that off with that defense uh, that, that the Broncos have. The line for the Chiefs is much better than it was earlier on in the season. They finally settled on a combination that seems to be working the last two weeks. Uh, also, there are two key members of that Broncos defense not playing this week. Tlaib is out for a week because of the because of the eye-gouging incident. And uh, Ware is also out because he's re-aggravated a back problem. So I think those are areas that will allow us a little bit more uh, latitude. I think if we win it, it'll be tight and it'll be a tough-ass game. But I just think... Looking at how they went last week and looking at the pieces that are missing, there's a chance. Did DeMarcus Ware actually react about his back injury jumping up and down the tight end? I neck? think he did it doing the worm <laughs> and trying to crush someone's throat. <laughs> Ronan? Yeah, like I would agree to a certain extent that the the losses on the Denver defense will make a difference, but I think overall, like I think there's just enough talent level and they've kind of they should have enough to just take on a KC team, which like I just don't have faith in right now. I think this is mostly based on past performance, so maybe it's a bit uh, suspect, but I think when you look at the records and you look at the talent level, you would still have it on Denver for a KC team that's still missing Jamal Charles. Oh, yeah. No matter the many, many interesting facts I no doubt you have about your counter quest. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 I agree entirely. And like, yeah, I just have that thing in the back of my head of like, well, this time hopefully we won't turn the ball over five times, especially around <laughs> the end zones. And our final game that we disagree on this week, I've taken Cardinals, Harry's taken Cardinals, and Homer Boy in the Homer Bro uh, has taken his Seahawks for the final game. So I suppose I'll kick off on this one. Seahawks look relatively weak of late. They haven't been able to finish games. Their defense hasn't been as impressive as it should have been, and their offense has not been firing. Arizona are an excellent team who are strong on both sides of the ball, have a good run game, have excellent receivers, and receivers plural, which I think will be important given that there is now a weak spot on that Legion of Boom uh, defensive back collection. I see Arizona coming in here fresh, ready to try and get themselves back on track for targeting one of the top two spots in the NFC. Seattle, while will be motivated and pushing for a win, uh, I think they're not going to have enough to take on what I think is going to be one of the top teams in the NFC. Arizona are probably the most exciting team, with perhaps the exception of the Patriots in the NFL right now. But they have shown that they aren't invincible. Like They lost to the Rams, they lost to the Landry Jones-led Pittsburgh Steelers, and they haven't been totally impressive in their wins over teams like the Browns. And I think like the Seahawks have had some major collapses this season in the fourth quarter. But to lose a fourth quarter lead, you do obviously have to be ahead in the fourth quarter. And we have played two of the we lost two against the undefeated team, two of the undefeated teams, and then one loss to the Packers. So I think this is a Seahawks team coming off the bye, starting to get healthy, getting a few pieces back, 
which is getting Jimmy Graham into the game. And I disagree with your worst offseason move thing about Jimmy Graham. So, like, I basically think at home in CenturyLink, they will have the advantage. Like, it's still one of the hardest places to play. So I think they should just have enough to edge this game in what will probably be a split series over the course of the season. I get what Ron's saying about the Cardinals sometimes, you know, not winning games where you'd expect them to win. I don't know if the home field advantage is going to be key in that season where the Seahawks won the Super Bowl. The only team to beat them uh, in, in at home was the Arizona Cardinals, so there's some history there. I, I think Arizona just coming to this game in a better position. Yeah, they haven't looked impressive against teams. Seattle aren't teams that's really been able to sort of put its boot on the throat of opponents if they've come out the gate slow or started to stru- struggled to start out the game. So I don't know if that situation is going to necessarily be a critical factor. What I think is in, important is, it's similar to what Connor said, the amount of weapons that Arizona have, and if they can hone in, having obviously Floyd back and back up to speed makes that receiving core so much better by having that third guy that you can trust and third guy that you can throw to. They have a three different running backs who all play very different styles, who they, again, now seem to have all back up to speed. So if one isn't working, they can chop and change there. So they've got sort of enough to, I think, find the weaknesses on the Seahawks team and adapt during the game, as we saw they, well, I suppose that half time as they did against the Browns and things are going badly. So, you know, I think Arizona are in a better position. I also think Arizona's defense, let's not forget, are very, very good. And um, Seattle have really struggled against teams of ferocious pass rush this year. So I think we could see Russell Wilson sort of, again, running for his life and not really having anyone to throw it to. So that could be, that could be, have a, have a significant impact. Okay, fair enough. Well, I suppose that wraps up the picks for now. Uh, we'll see how a few of those go. Say, uh, there'll be a few, few sad faces uh, come Monday, Tuesday morning. But, Jano, uh, good stuff, lads. Uh, any other crack with yourselves? It's a big, big, big game this weekend. So, just looking forward to that, and hopefully, we can uh, take it on. And obviously, the Ireland uh, qualifier. Also, look forward to this weekend. It's qualifiers, yeah. I should say. Yeah, it'll be interesting. Yeah. Certainly will be. Uh, watching Ireland play is uh, it's St. Louis at Minnesota sometimes, isn't like, it? What are we going to do? Like, there's, there's, because we're missing John O'Shea, the greatest football player that ever played the game. It's true. <laughs> Does his planet need him? Is that why? I think so. Oh God! Him and Pucci. Uh, without John O'Shea, all is lost. <laughs> Yeah, you know, the sad part is you're not even joking. <laughs> no, bizarrely, I'm not. Oh, well, sure, always fun. Uh, but, yeah, thanks very much for listening, guys. As I said, the uh, the Facebook page is up and running. The Twitter account is up and running. The SoundCloud is up there. We'll be having some new logos and everything coming up. Hopefully now today when you're getting this... Uh, when you're getting this uh, this new episode or a load of that news just should be up and uh, then hopefully in the following week we should be up and live on iTunes. So, uh Again, thanks everyone for listening. Uh, drop us a line if you've got any questions, comments, or anything like that. We're still open for suggestions as to why uh, Tony Romo's injury has so affected other teams around the league. Uh, we've yet to get an answer that satisfies Kane, for he is a hard man to satisfy. And on that note, <laughs> thanks very much. We'll chat to you all next week. 